1: You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: My name is Kirsten Saunders, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast.
1: How do you leave? The call came in the middle of the night, or more precisely around three o'clock in the morning. Groggy from days of interrupted sleep, I barely had a hold of the phone before I almost dropped it in disbelief. The nurse wanted an order for a routine flu shot that was going to be given later that morning after the sun had come up, and I felt abused, tortured by an onslaught of calls, rules, expectations, and regulations that all my years of training and all my decades of hard work and all the best of my intentions couldn't fix. I knew I had to leave medicine. I had suddenly and irrevocably been pushed just one step in an incredibly long series of steps too far. I had to go. At least I knew it in my mind, but my body didn't know how to get there. As silly as it sounds, my body was used to the rhythms of the workplace, entrained by the ebb and flow of patient care, a subtle vibration ever so gently tuned to my deepest of needs. Leaving, it turns out, was much more complicated than I expected. It would still take a few years from that time before I was able to not only recognize the abuse, but name it with clear words and an undaunted heart. But even if the transgressions hadn't gone so far, it was certainly clear that my purpose in life was headed elsewhere, my skill set pivoting and my identity shifting. So why was it so hard to leave? Why do we find it so hard to leave jobs that not only no longer nourish us, but also hold us back? Kirsten Saunders is an engaged member of the growing financial independence retire early community and mom to a two-year-old. She, along with her husband, Julian, launched Rich and Regular in September of 2017. Their blog has been featured in the New York Times, CBS This Morning, and Glamour. But the goal remains simple, provide an honest, informative take on how to improve your life through mastering personal finance. What started as an act of social rebellion quickly became more purpose-driven. Kirsten aspires to use her platform as a call to action that inspires other women to use money as a tool to improve their quality of life, build generational wealth, and become so rich that they can afford to speak their truth. You may remember her from episode 24, where we talked about being African American in the financial independence community. I bring up this episode because it highlights what is so special about the Rich and Regular blog and brand. It is a place where difficult topics are discussed in amazingly clear and concise terms. I don't know anyone else who does it quite as well. Kirsten, welcome back to the show.
0: Thank you so much. Excited to be here.
1: I'm excited to have you. And I had the privilege of speaking alongside your husband over the weekend at the Economy Conference. It was a really fun time. And it was really great to hear everyone up there on the podium talking. Julian has a great story.
0: He does. And I especially enjoyed your rap. That was a a nice surprise.
1: Yes, by now, some people may know that there was indeed a rap done on stage. I'm sure if you look around Facebook or at any of our group pages, you'll probably be able to find it. But indeed, we are here to talk about you and not economy, nor your husband today, nor me or my rapping skills. (laughs) So let me start with the basics. I want you to think back to the college-aged you. You're coming up on graduation What did success look like for you, especially when thinking about employment as you were finishing college?
0: Yeah, that's an interesting question because I was lucky enough to get a full-time job offer my sophomore year of college. And so I graduated a year early because I knew I already had a job coming out. I had done really well in my internship. I was like, what's the point in staying two more years when I've already gotten the thing that most people come to college for? And so what I was most thinking about in terms of my career was all the cool things I could buy. (laughs) The first thing I did um, was get a luxury car and I got a really fancy loft apartment in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I just started thinking about all the things that I could make with my starting salary.
1: So you were really optimistic. This was like making it. You were finishing early. You were on the path
0: hundred percent. Yeah. I've always loved making money. I started businesses when I was young. My dad taught me entrepreneurship and said the only thing that was standing between me and my money was my courage and my voice. And so I'd always been really good at earning. And when I did my first internship at a big box retailer, at the internship, we had to do a presentation. And if you did well in the presentation, you would get this job offer that would be there for you contingent upon graduation. And so, yeah, I was very optimistic that I had played the game and won and two years into college was coming out with the thing that everybody goes there for.
1: You said two interesting things there that I want to touch back on. One is you said that I found no reason to continue in college after that third year because I already gotten what most people went to college for. And then the other things you said is that you had always been into entrepreneurship. Was there ever this thought that maybe coming out of college you should, instead of going and becoming employed, should have just started your own business? Like was that even part of the thought process?
0: Yeah, that was actually the thought process before I went to college. I actually positioned to my dad that he could give me all of the tuition money and that I would go start a business. And he was like, hard no, <laughs> like that's not happening. <laughs> but I started questioning college probably my junior year of high school. Like I did a program that allowed me to go to California for a month as a junior in high school and learn from other entrepreneurs and business owners. And I saw really quickly that the path to wealth was not through traditional employment. Or within traditional employment, it was like narrowed down to very specific niches, like you had to be in investment banking, or you had to be a doctor, or you had to be like in advertising. There were very specific things that would get you a lot of money the traditional way. And so after my dad said no to starting a business before college, I pretty much subscribed to employee life.
1: And do you think college changed you? So you went in, coming from high school, it sounds like you had this like crazy entrepreneur mind. And then you go to college and it's like, okay, I'm gonna be an employee. What happened when you were at school?
0: Imposter syndrome. (laughs) I went to a very academically rigorous school, at least for me at the time. I went to North Carolina, UNC Chapel Hill, and I was an out-of-state student, and I had done really well in school, in high school. I was in a dual enrollment program. I thought I was smart. I was coming in with like 18 credits, and then I got there and I met like really, really smart people, (laughs) people who had worked very, very hard to get there, And it did something to my confidence. I almost was on academic probation after the first semester because I didn't have a rhythm around my studying. I didn't have a strategy. And I wasn't used to learning the way that university taught, like lecture style, where you're listening and you're not just memorizing facts and responding to standardized tests. Like this was a new way of learning. My plan was to come in, do really well, get accepted into the business school. So at Carolina, you have to be accepted into the undergrad business school. You can't just sign up to be a business major. My plan was to get accepted into business school, but when I had this, you know, measly GPA, (laughs) that became off the table. And so I opted for a major that was like a business major, but done through the sociology department. So the major was called Management and Society, and it was all about organizational strategy and management and the psychology of business as it's done through people. And so that was what I pursued, and that changed everything for me. It made business not so clinical. It made it more about understanding people and getting the most out of people in order to achieve your business goals.
1: So after that original hardship you had at the beginning of college, it seems like by the time you were entering the workplace, you had had a decent amount of confidence built up. Like You felt good where you were going and what you were getting into.
0: Yeah, mostly because one of the things that I did to get my GPA back on track was to get a part-time job. I had had a job my senior year and junior year of high school, and I knew that that was a thing that added structure to my life because it constrained my time in a way that I just didn't have options to party instead of study. So I came back to school, got a job working in retail, selling shoes at the mall like I did in high school. And when the internship for another retailer came up, I was like, oh, I can totally do this. I do this all the time. This would pay me twice the money, though. And so I definitely had confidence in being in customer service and selling and, you know, working with frontline employees. That was my jam.
1: And the job you eventually took, that was from an internship you had done?
0: Yes, it was a management job. In the internship, we learned all of the different departments of the store. And my first job was like a human resources manager over a hundred person store in a small town in North Carolina.
1: Talk to me about how it felt different being an intern as opposed to being a full-time employee.
0: Initially, it wasn't that different. I came into my first job very smug. (laughs) And in hindsight, I can see why a lot of the employees didn't connect with me immediately. (laughs) Because I thought I knew everything. I thought you could manage people by reading a book. And at the time, I was reading a bunch of management books. I was reading Good to Great. I was reading Carly Fiorona's book and all sorts of these, you know, business tycoons and icons at the time. And I would try and apply that to like frontline retail workers who were making minimum wage. There was a gap there. And so that was the first kind of shock where it was just like, oh, I guess I don't know everything.
1: Being familiar with your content and also knowing that you recently have transitioned out of this job, I know that some of that excitement and optimism that you came into the job with faded over time. Can you think of a pivot point where it went from feeling good to you starting to question what it meant to be an employee?
0: There are several times. I definitely have patterns that show up in my life when I'm overwhelmed or burnt out from work. So the first time was about four years into my retail experience. I was working every other weekend. Those of you who have retail jobs or service industry jobs, you know it's nights, it's weekends, it's holidays. And I was out of state at the time. So I was constantly either at work or driving back home to see my family. And so I was super burnt out and I started applying for jobs in Atlanta to move back home. And so that was the first time where I was suddenly in my apartment. I was dealing with like all kind of digestive issues. I was drinking, I wasn't eating well, like I was shopping. <laughs> this is where the credit card debt, if you're familiar with our story, came from. I was just coping through all of these unhealthy habits. So that was the first time, and then I got to Atlanta, fell into a quick lifestyle here because this is where I'm from, and a lot of my friends were here, and so about two years into my working career here, it was the same situation, and the way that I resolved it was to just keep getting higher-paying jobs. By the second higher-paying job, that's when I met Julian, my husband, (laughs) and he discovered this little habit that I have of just out-earning my coping mechanisms instead of actually dealing with the root cause, and that's when we started with our Path to Fire. So talk to me a little
1: bit about this idea of what I would relate to as burnout, because that's what we often call it in medicine. Do you think it was specific to each job itself or was it endemic to the workplace that you were experiencing?
0: I think it's endemic to the workplace as well as the shifts in the broader culture. If we just had to go to work and come home and not have to worry about anything else, then maybe it would work. I don't know. For Black women in particular, there are all kinds of social issues. There are family issues. There are demands. There are aggressions that you're dealing with in the workplace that make it, I don't want to say harder, but make it different. Um, Make it more of an emotional toll than just like a physical or a time toll on your body.
1: I want to focus on two things you just said there. Let's first start with the financial independence part. Talk a little bit about interacting with Julian, learning about your finances and how that changed your feelings about work.
0: Oh, that's a good question. Julian was the first person that made me grapple with the odds that I was (laughs) manipulating in my head. And so at the time, I just thought I would keep getting promoted. And he was the first one to pull out the org chart (laughs) and not just the one at our company, but the one at several companies that I admire and say, look at it. Like, does anybody here look like you? Does anyone here act like you? Do they have the life that you want? When a teenager is playing, you know, recreational sports and they tell you they want to be an NFL player, you don't discourage their dreams, but you also bring a level of reality to say, okay, well, if you want to do that, just know that you are the exception, not the rule. And he was the first person that did that to the workplace for me. He was the first person that brought those same odds down to something that I was identifying with and saying, just know that even if you're right, you are the exception and not the rule. And the cost that you're going to pay to get there, you have to decide if that's worth it for you.
1: Speak to that a little bit, being a Black woman in today's corporate America. What is the likelihood of entering the C-suite?
0: I think it's like less than a percent of a percent. It is so tiny and the amount of stress and struggle that you have to put yourself through to get it I don't know that it's worth it. If you look at Black women who have made history before, so Black women who have integrated school systems or hidden figures of Black women who were behind the scenes in NASA, if you ask them, would you do it again? Most of them are like, no, like (laughs) it was not worth it. I have PTSD to this day. I don't like crowds. I'm uncomfortable in my own skin. Yes, I'm glad that everybody benefited from it, but The sacrifice that they made was something that I hold dearly to me to say, I don't know that it's worth it, especially now with all of the technology and emerging industries that we have as alternatives. There's more than one path. I don't know the benefit of breaking the glass ceiling if I'm just going to get bloodied and scarred (laughs) along the way.
1: So at that point in your life, it made a lot of sense to start focusing on the finances and how you could optimize that side because the income or revenue side, at least in your current employed job, started feeling somewhat limited.
0: Correct. Yep. As soon as I started investing and understanding how compound interest worked and comparing like for like, even on my best raise days or you know my annual merits and bonuses combined the amount of compound interest that was working in the background would still exceed it. Granted, it was a bull market. So for all the math heads out there, I get it. (laughs) But it was a very easy comparison to say, you know, I can work 60 hours a week and get this amount, or I can just stop buying things I don't need and put that money to work. And that money works 24 seven around the clock speaks multiple languages isn't asked about its hair or (laughs) isn't called out when you're wearing something different. It felt like a no-brainer to me.
1: You use the word no-brainer and I'm interested in that. Did your mind make that mental transition quickly or were parts of you still hanging on to this idea that, no, I'm supposed to build my way up to the corporate ladder. I'm supposed to get to that highest level I'm supposed to achieve. Like, was there a part of you that was fighting against it or was it just like, nope, I got it. This is what I need to do.
0: There was definitely a part of me that was fighting against it. And it was always triggered by other people. And this is the work that I'm still doing, even, you know, in this next phase of life, where I'm learning how to introduce myself as an entrepreneur or a writer or, you know, whatever title I want to use. But it would come up in social settings because people are conditioned to ask you, what do you do? And what does your LinkedIn profile say? And what do you work on every day? And who do you know? And It was hard to not care about those things, to teach people how to be social without putting so much weight on the external qualifiers of jobs. And it
1: sounds like I've heard you say before that our current workplace is broken. When you become a part of corporate America and that culture, it doesn't allow you to grow in such ways. Is that right?
0: Yeah, I mean, the demands of work are increasing. The rate of wages is not growing nearly as fast as productivity. And so the demands of work are increasing. And you've got all of these pressures outside of work that are also taking up more of your income. And so the absence of a universal health care plan or the absence of daycare subsidies or the just general inflationary rates of the goods and services that we use every day, those things add a pressure on what you expect work to do. And work is not returning that (laughs) is not responding to that pressure with, okay, here are more wages. They're basically passing on any additional margins to shareholders.
1: And it affects the way you think about yourself. In fact, I saw you say in one of your blog posts, I spent almost two decades shrinking in the name of professionalism. So this was having an impact in how you felt about yourself.
0: Yeah, it's one of the costs of not being able to take a break. So after I left retail, my career transitioned into sales, marketing, business development, account management roles, And so what I was responsible for was maintaining client relationships in the pursuit of gaining more revenue or gaining more business from that person. And so anyone who's been in a sales role knows that your job is to make people comfortable, is to make people feel like you're a great partner and to make people feel like they want to continue to work with you. Because I haven't been able to take a significant break, the only break that I've really taken from my job was my honeymoon, which was two weeks, and maternity leave, which is not a break. (laughs) Like I was around the clock, you know, working on keeping a newborn alive. And so because of that, you start to internalize these thoughts of everybody else's comfort and they start to sound like your own. Like that's the trick that your brain plays is it doesn't use the thoughts that you use at work in somebody else's voice. It doesn't like isolate those and compartmentalize those into separate things. They kind of just merge into your own thoughts and patterns. And so I'd find myself around strangers, around people who I'm not trying to win an account relationship with or not trying to get some business development from. And I would be doing the same things that I do at work. And that's catering to them, not saying what's on my mind, agreeing with everything that's on their mind, just trying to be professional instead of authentic. And that becomes a challenge as you get older and start to understand that the tension there is causing other issues in your life.
1: I feel like what you're describing is common for a lot of people in corporate America. And I'm wondering, do you suppose that's because we're all high achievers and personally haven't gotten to the place where we've come to terms with that? Or do you think it's actually conditioning specifically done by corporate America to its employees?
0: I think it's both. It can be high achieving because I know people that are completely comfortable could walk away from their job at any time and continue to stay because they want to prove something (laughs) or they want, they have something that they want to accomplish. They have this list, but I definitely think that there is some level of conditioning, especially when you look at late stage capitalism, where you feel obligated. You feel like this is your duty. We have assigned virtue to work and there is virtue in work, but not the way that it's being performed by these companies that aren't really taking care of their employees.
1: Yeah, that was my follow-up question was, do you feel like corporate America takes care of its employees? But it sounds like the answer is no.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it's not just me. (laughs) I think um, I heard a stat this weekend that employee engagement is at an all-time high of 34%. So (laughs) I would say the majority of Americans agree that corporate America is not taking care of its employees.
1: And yet there are promotions and pay raises of which I feel like you've probably got many of them. Did they make you feel better? Was it like, oh, I got that promotion. Now it's starting to feel good.
0: Yeah, it did what it was supposed to do. It gave me the temporary dopamine boost. The work that I've had to do individually in terms of my own personal development is not assigning any meaning to that for my character. I'm not any better than someone who didn't get the promotion and they're not any better than me if they got an even bigger promotion. Although I might have opinions about corporate America as an institution, the people that I worked with every day, my team, was treated with dignity and respect, and I really tried to consider what they would be bringing home to their dinner table. So as a leader, I would always make sure that people felt seen and appreciated and respected. Even if I couldn't give them the big raise because of constraints from human resources, they would always know that I was appreciative and thankful for the work they did for the team.
1: You mentioned as you began that sentence, temporary, so the temporary dopamine hit. So it felt good briefly, but it wasn't giving you long-term contentedness.
0: No, not at all, especially when you do the math, <laughs> because you might think that a you know $15,000 increase is amazing, and it is in some contexts. But when you take out taxes, and when you take out the amount of time that you have to do, that you have to spend more, and the amount of training that you might need to accomplish Whatever new goals you have and the pressure that the organization now puts on you because they feel like you owe them because you were chosen and other people weren't. There's a whole psychology cost um, to taking on that new job. And I don't know that I did the mental math fully before I said yes every time. I was more so interested in $250 that it would add to my paycheck and after we started our fire journey like that made sense before i would go to apply for any job i would have a plan for exactly how i was going to spend the money and so the trade off made sense but more recently i would say in the last year i couldn't find any sense making <laughs> in any type of promotion like when i got the job that i got shortly after julian left the conversation i had with my boss at the time was this is my last job like this is my swan song you got to know that, like, professional development to me does not look like increased visibility or more assignments or bigger hurdles to climb. This is how I'm riding out into the sunset because I knew there was no trade off that would make sense for any additional responsibility.
1: You speak of these things with a very clear voice, and yet you say that I spent most of 2019 digging into my fears. What does that mean? What were your fears if it sounded like you had come to this place where you understood that you were only going to get so far with corporate America?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Because when I got the job a year and a half ago, I specifically chose my boss. So I had reached the point in, the, in my career where I was not choosing jobs I was choosing bosses, and so I was only applying to roles under people that I wanted to work for, and there were only like five of them at my company at the time. Everything was going great. I read Work Optional earlier in the year, and I had really gotten a lot of tips from Tanya on how to manage the last years of a career, and so I was working through the list like a good student. She gives you like a list of things you should do, think about, questions you should ask yourself. I was incorporating things into my routine. I was deciding that I don't need to wait two years to pick up this hobby. I can go ahead and do it now. I was doing all the things that Tanya said I should do, (laughs) which felt good. But then in September of 2019, our company did another reorg. And in that reorg, my team was lifted from the leader that I had carefully selected and placed in another organization. And it disrupted a lot of the underlying assumptions that I was making that I had built into my routine and that I was planning to do for another two and a half years. And so I noticed that by December, I was slipping back into the coping mechanisms that I had done before when I was overwhelmed. I wasn't calling it that. We're much more comfortable and You know, it didn't feel like a strain and we were making lots of money, but I was trying to make the time that I had work. I was feeling really time starved and feeling like every day I just didn't have any time. I was skipping meals. I was staying up late, trying to capture like a little bit of me time which then would lead to me pouring a cocktail, which meant I was drinking by myself at like 1130 at night. It was just a hot mess. And so once I realized the shift that had happened was one that I wasn't comfortable with, I started to dive deep into the fears of what would happen if I left earlier than we had planned. Like, what do we lose? What do we gain? What does it mean about me if I can't stick it out just because I got a new boss? It just felt like I was being a baby. (laughs) I had spent all this time like telling myself, like, we can do this. You know, we talk to people all the time, like you can do anything for a little while. And here I was wanting to quit earlier than the family had planned for. And that was scary.
1: Just to clarify, you're talking about Tanya Hester, who wrote the amazing book, Retire Optional. It seems like you went through something very similar to what I went through when I decided it was time to leave medicine. We have this armor of financial independence, which tells us what the economic possibilities are. And yet it's hard to leave what we're used to. It's hard to leave our habits, what we've done for all these years. I know leaving the workplace was scary to me just because it was different. It wasn't what I was used to. Sometimes it defies logic a little bit.
0: It does. We call it golden handcuffs because it is comfortable imprisonment, like house arrest. Um, because, you you know, you start thinking about like, yes, I don't like the way it feels to commute every day. But I do like the fact that when my son has an asthma attack, I can just take him to the doctor. I don't have to worry about the co-pay or getting a prescription. I do like the fact that every other Thursday, I know I can open my bank account and there is a consistent deposit there. I do like the fact that there's a corporate match to my 401k. (laughs) So I started thinking about all the other things that weren't as present as like how I was feeling about being in the office and sitting in meetings and dealing with the drudgery of corporate work. There's other benefits there. And when you talk about leaving, you have to acknowledge that you're leaving both. And so that was a shift for me.
1: What do you think happened in 2019 that helped you overcome those fears that gave you the courage to say, okay, my plan was to leave in a year or two, but I'm going to do it now.
0: It was one weekend in particular, we were working on our book proposal and my son was away at my parents' house and I just woke up and was like in my bag. I was just like writing (laughs) and it was the first time like I had experienced flow like the psychological flow of like everything kind of aligning in a really long time. It just felt so good. I remembered what it felt like to be doing what you're intended to do. And between that weekend and the holidays and a couple of strategic work from home days, I ended up spending about two weeks outside of the office. It was the first time that I just got the clouds parted. and I got the level of clarity that I was looking for And we went through this process called Distill. It was like a, we went through a writing coach and he was asking us to tell us our life story and pull out key themes and key messages that people have said to you. Just trying to look for like where your real values are. And I started thinking about the key messages that people had said to me over the years. The ones that Julian has said to me have really stuck out. And his was the voice that I was like ignoring the most at this time. (laughs) <laughs> because it was adding a lot of stress to my life. But when I thought about some of the things that he was saying to me, and I really let it sink in, and the questions that he was asking me, this is the thing that I need to do. He's been right. I don't want to say all the time because he'll hold it against me, but he's been right a lot of the times. In periods like this where I had a fork in the road, he will ask a question that causes me to get like the clarity that I need. And he had been asking these questions for the last couple of months and I was just ignoring them and brushing them off because I didn't want to think about it. But when I sat and thought about those questions over the two week period of time where I wasn't in the office, everything made more sense.
1: As you were describing that flow you felt while you were writing... I couldn't help but think back to the Kirsten in high school who knew she wanted to be an entrepreneur. And it sounds very similar. Maybe that was who you were before you stepped into academics and had this horrible, overwhelming feeling of not being good enough.
0: Oh, wow. I feel like I should pay you for that comment <laughs> because that that's profound. That's exactly who it was. The Kirsten before I went to college was carefree. She was a writer. She wanted to be an entrepreneur. Like, All of these things that I had given up in pursuit of this professional pantsuit wearing like boss lady (laughs) started to come back over this two weeks. I started journaling again. I discovered meditation, not discovered it, but I started actively like practicing it, which has continued to be life changing. And I had time away. Old Kirsten came in knocking down furniture and (laughs) kicking open doors because she was ready to come out.
1: Yeah, the word that comes to mind is bold. I imagine that the high school entrepreneur Kirsten was bold and the Kirsten I've come to know and respect seems very bold too. So whatever was happening at work, it certainly doesn't sound like it was doing good things for you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I was still bold, but I was bold in a very narrow context. People don't understand how narrow the scope is at work. I was just talking to a friend about this that you don't realize, like, how limited your conversations can be at work because of, I'm using air quotes, professionalism. You can't talk about certain things. You can't talk about the full range of your feelings. You can't even express an opinion about something that's happening in the news. Again, especially as a Black woman, <laughs> because those things are just completely off the table. I was tired of being bold in such a small arena of, like, revenue making and, and marketing. I wanted to be bold in other places,
1: So when you sat down to write this blog post about why you were leaving work, you wrote that it was actually hard, that you had to sit back and really think it, ponder. It took you a long time to try to express your why. Why do you think that is? Do you think it was because you didn't know or was it you knew but had trouble figuring out how to tell people that?
0: I think it goes back to the pattern of trying to make people comfortable with my decision. My reason why is not one that a lot of people can relate to. My reason is because I can, because I've put myself in a position where I can. And I wanted to just say that that's the reason we do a lot of things that we do because we can, because it's an option to us. But I was trying to like back into like, well, what's a feeling that a lot of people can relate to or What is a emotion that a lot of women go through? And there was all of that too. There was all of that, but that wasn't the reason that made me pull the trigger. I wasn't going to do something that I couldn't do. And so I wanted to boil it down to its essence and just finding the courage to say that and to start that conversation around how other people can get to that point was something that I needed to work through and not just fall back into, let's make this about childcare or let's make this about time No, let's make this about financial independence and why we make the decisions that we make.
1: I'm going to push you a little bit on this. You said part of the reason or at least part of the explanation is because I can. And you named that post, I love me more than I love my job. So I quit. Could you have done that earlier? Did your love for yourself change that allowed you to leave earlier?
0: It did. It became more of a verb than a noun or an adjective. And what loving myself at this stage in my life looks like is taking time for myself, not self-care and like the luxury. I want facials. I still do, but not not just in that sense, but in the amount of time that I need to think and to process and to make sense of the way that my life has changed in the last five years. <laughs> in the last five years, I've paid off a ton of debt. I've gotten married. I've moved. I've bought houses, sold houses. I've had a baby. A lot has changed and I haven't had any time to process that. In December, when I took those weeks off, that was the first time where I started to take the time to clear the muck and listen to myself and find out which voice is my own. And that created a new sense of self-worth and love. And I realized that the value that I was extracting from the workplace was nothing like the value that I could give myself.
1: Two things in particular, I imagine really changed your outlook. One is obviously having a baby. And the other is watching Julian go through the transition of leaving work. Talk a little bit about both of those. Start with having a baby. Did that change your outlook on work?
0: It did, I really struggled in early motherhood because I was looking for the same metrics and feedback loops that work gave me. So I would do everything right. I've also struggled with perfectionism over the last two decades. But I would do everything right. I would keep the baby on a schedule. I would pump and breastfeed. I would eat organically. I would do everything right and the baby would still cry. (laughs) And I did not understand why the baby was crying. Like, why is the baby not smiling? I would take it very personally. I can laugh about it now, but at the time, it was really, really stressful. And so when I first went back to work, I thought it would be a relief. But then when I went back to work, I realized how small those tasks were as opposed to being home and raising my son. So that was the first shift. And it took a while to adjust to that. And it was an ongoing process. I had to travel for work. So I was gone 30-40% you know, of the time. And so just getting used to that concept and adjusting to all of the demands of leaving one job and coming home and having another job of taking care of your family and just not having a break was really tough for me.
1: And Julian leaving work, how did that affect you?
0: Julian leaving work just emphasized what I was already feeling. So when Julian left work, he was already a great dad, but he became a phenomenal dad because he was able to spend more time with Bo and they developed this connection. And then Julian was able to detox from all of the conditioning that he had received from work. And if you know Julian, you know that he's very honest and, he says what's on his mind and he doesn't hold back and he challenges people all the time, whether he's just met you or known you for like a decade, he listens to what you say and he says, um, I've got to push you on that. I'm going to challenge you on that. <laughs> and so these are the reasons that I fell in love with him because, you know, all of the challenges that he had given me up until that point made me better. But the minute he left, I started to feel like he was just picking on me. I would say things like, wish me luck for a big meeting that I was having. And he'd be like, why do you need luck? Why do you even care? You already know what's going to happen. And I'd be like, gosh, that seems so condescending and not supportive. But he's right. I didn't need luck. It was a meeting that I was prepared for. It was a meeting that I had done a hundred times. It's just, you know, the habits of spousal support that I was looking for. One day he asked me if the job was toxic because he was seeing that it was, that it was affecting me in a way that wasn't healthy. I ignored him. I was just like, that's just such a rude question to ask at dinner. And (laughs) I don't appreciate you you asking me such a controversial question for a workplace that I have to go to. When I look back, I'm like, that's a fair question. I was assigning a meaning to that because I hadn't dealt with my own stuff. It was hard. We were definitely growing apart because he saw the world so differently than I did because his day was different than mine.
1: Those are tough questions, the ones that make us fundamentally look at the things that scare us the most. And it sounds like this year for you has really been a year where you've confronted those things because maybe like me in the introduction, we both got to this place where we realized that the status quo was making us miserable and we had to change something. I know for me, it took years to go from knowing I had to change something to actually getting there. So listening to your story and seeing how you did it over 2019 is pretty darn impressive.
0: Thank you. I think it's Tim Ferriss who says, everything you want is behind a better set of questions. And that is the motto that I try to live by these days, where if I am asking myself a question over and over again, and I'm still feeling stuck despite how good the answer has gotten... And I just need to ask myself a different question.
1: When I listen to you talk about work in your past, it sounds so narrow. And when I've listened to you guys talk about your future, it sounds very expansive. Tell me what you think your plans are going to be now that you've cleared the cobwebs of work. What do you see in your future? What do you think will be the work that brings real meaning to you?
0: Oh, man, that's such a big question. And I'm going to be honest and say that the cobwebs have not completely cleared yet. <laughs> Every time I think they're cleared, there's another Charlotte building her web and <laughs> creating all kinds of new drama in my head. It takes a while to like rewire your brain to not think of everything the same way that you thought about your job, to not think about work as something that needs to pay you immediately or give you the feedback that you're looking for. To answer your question, I think when I visualize what life looks like, it's definitely more honest conversations, better conversations. It's slow travel. So the ability to take month-long vacations and bring our son. So instead of trying to escape (laughs) him, kind of bringing him along and just being more patient with ourselves and the trip to accommodate the needs of a, you know, almost three-year-old. It looks like talking more about our story and our path and introducing more Black people to financial independence and the spectrum of options that are available, not just early retirement, but sabbaticals, gap years, whatever floats your boat. And it looks like more writing, like more vulnerable writing. I feel like I tend in the past to lean towards more tactical, prescriptive take action immediately (laughs) type writing. But there's a lot of stories that I think would be helpful that may not have a solution. It's just helpful to know that somebody else has gone through it or is going through it just like you are.
1: I've seen you say in your blog that richness is having options. One thing I learned when all of a sudden the options were infinite is that can also be quite overwhelming, that it takes some time to get used to that infinity of possibilities.
0: Okay. Yes. I'm glad you said that because in any given week, I want to learn Spanish and trading and I want to study psychology and I also want to start a garden and I've always wanted to figure out how to like, cornrow my hair, (laughs) not just it. YouTube has opened up the spectrum of possibilities of things that I can learn. And I have felt a sense of overwhelm because I'm still trying to hold myself to a standard of a Monday through Friday week and not doing anything on the weekend or cramming everything on the weekend. Like I just have to reset all of my expectations around how time works and how owning my time works. That is still a work in progress.
1: Yeah, what did we do before YouTube? I don't know.
0: (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. YouTube has me thinking I can like build a house. (laughs) I was like, oh, I'm about to go buy some spackle. And Julian's like, you're definitely not spackling anything in this house.
1: So I want to end this conversation by going back to the beginning a little bit. Looking back at you, the about to graduate college, well, I say junior now, we normally would say senior, but the third year college student, could you have done things differently or did you have to go through this process to end where you are today?
0: Ooh, I think I had to go through the process to end where I am today. I think I needed to experience both sides of the fence. One where you fully believe in work. I was a shameless careerist. When I encounter people who love their jobs and fully believe that work will always give them what they need, I know what they're saying because I've been there. But I also needed to be able to go through the path of unlearning that and really learning a new way of being to really appreciate the level of freedom that financial independence gives us. So I think I had to do both.
1: I just want to say I really connect with your story because my process of leaving work left me with many of the similar feelings you have. And it for sure was in many ways for me an identity crisis. But maybe part of that crisis was that I had lost an important part of myself when I entered the medicine world. And it took me a while to find it back. And as I get farther and farther, I feel myself growing back more into the person that I loved when I was younger. And I can tell that you are in the process of doing the same thing.
0: And I think it's a really good place to be. That's so helpful. Thank you for sharing that. I love that.
1: So, I'm going to end up as I always end up by asking where can we find you and what is up next in your life?
0: You can find me at richandregular.com. We are also on social media on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest at richandregular. And what is up for us next is writing a book. So, we're super excited about the book we have coming out going to be part love story, part self-help, part memoir. And the goal is really just to encourage better conversations about money, to teach everyone new sets of questions to ask themselves, to make sure that they're making progress with their conversations about money and recognizing when they're stuck.
1: This has been the Earn and Invest Podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Kirsten Saunders. That's a wrap. Are you ever scrolling through your facebook feed and wonder boy i wish i could listen to another episode of the earn and invest podcast well now you can engage in our content in two different ways one you can go to our website www.earnandinvest.com that's e-a-r-n-a-n-d-i-n-v-e-s-t dot or you can check us out on facebook at the earn and invest facebook group the easiest way to get there is www.diversify.com backslash Facebook. That's diversef icom backslash Facebook. We hope to see you there and engage with our community on topics very similar to the ones you'll find on the podcast. Now back to the show. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel This car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, service key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. LinkedIn Sales Navigator is a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash earn. That is linkedin.com slash E-A-R-N for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash earn and get started. Welcome back. I have my friend here, Alex Scott Felice, the writer at Broke is a Choice. He is a real estate maven and Alex, a podcaster kind of maybe in the future. What's going on?
2: I gave up podcasting my own, but now I'm the co-host of uh, David Paré's Military to Millionaire podcast, which I enjoy much better, better fit for me. And you're a frequent guester too. I've seen you on a, as a guest on a bunch of podcasts. I am a very frequent guest. In fact, tomorrow I, I record for the second time with Joe Fairless, which is a big deal for me. Ah, congrats.
1: So this is March 31st, 2020. You've been staying at home or getting outside a little bit? I know that most places are now shelter in place.
2: Uh, I'm in North Carolina. Shelter in place started Monday. Yep. I actually, well, it's been interesting. You see me on Facebook. I have been staying inside but I have been making people miserable about it on the internet. (laughs) Tell me
1: more about that. What do you mean making people miserable?
2: Well, you know, I know that the world is in a bit of a uh, panic and I know that people are uh, irrational. I know this. I don't think anybody would dispute that people in mass are irrational. And so we've gotten to this place now where everybody wants you to stay inside because it's supposedly the right thing to do, which I don't disagree with at all. And you and I spoke a little bit about that, but so like the idea sounds good but then you if you say something to incite people which I cannot help myself but to do and say things like I'm going to go outside I'm going to go do this I'm going to go do that well just the words alone make people go bananas and so unfortunately um in this these situations I'm not always the most helpful person because I just <laughs> I just like to you know push back against the system a little bit so
1: So, of course, we're talking about the coronavirus, and there's a huge debate going on. You and I are going to talk real estate in a moment, but the big debate seems to be, should we be shutting everything down or not? So, right, there's this group of people who say, from a health standpoint, coronavirus is a real problem, and unless you shut down all of our businesses, our industries, our restaurants, anything where you need person-to-person contact they're worried that there's going to be a long term problem. And then there's the other side that kind of says, yes, this is a problem. But if we shut down our economy, there are going to be long term consequences that may even dwarf the effect of the virus. How do you feel about these arguments?
2: I live in a world of gray. Okay, I hate extremes. And in fact, one of my biggest strengths in communicating is being able to poke fun at extremes of both sides. And so, like, if you take the extreme of both of those arguments and say, let's do nothing, it's like, well, we know that we can't do that. We have to treat the sick. I mean, there's just, people are going to get sick anyway, so it's hard to, like, tell the line. So, okay, you can't do everything, but if you shut down the economy, you're like, what does that mean, right? Should we shut down the grocery stores so people can't have food? Should we shut down Uber? Should we shut down taxi cab? Should we shut down, there's companies still fixing cars, and should we shut down gas stations? Should we shut down truckers? Should we shut, you know what I mean? Like, how far, fi- do you want to shut down the hospitals? Uh, No contact at all. So for me, I don't really know the, I don't know the nuance. I know that 100%, I know that people overreact to emotions, and they generally underappreciate risk. So in this situation, I'm not really sure what's right. And I don't claim to know what's right. But I have been on the lookout for extremes and trying to point out where it's like, you know, you say shut down the economy. It's like, what does that mean? Because we certainly haven't shut down everything.
1: And I will point out you and I got into it a little bit over Facebook. And just because you're talking about going outside doesn't mean that you're actually not following the recommendations and keeping the social distance and being very careful.
2: Yeah, there's part of that is true too. Yeah, And I have been outside and I didn't, I talked to my one friend, you know, I've been in contact with probably four people the last two weeks. I'm miserable as a heavy extrovert. And so, but again, the idea is if you expect me to not interact with any other humans at all, then the damage to society by me, a mental nutcase, sitting alone in my house, that's going to be far worse than anything this can do. And so, again, the extremes is like, yeah, I went out for a walk and I did some pushups with my, my one friend. And I'll tell you what else. There's a lot of people outside. So, you know, it's like, again, what are you trying to do? If you want to box people into their homes and control human behavior on a very strict basis on a mass level, like, it's just never going to happen. And so we have to allow for some of these this, some of this gray without ripping each other apart that we don't agree on the extremes. Yeah, especially in the United
1: States. And we complain about whether people are following directions or not in the United States. And a lot of people look at other countries like China and say, well, in China, the government just locks everything down. And while that might help in an extreme situation, we really enjoy all the freedoms we have here in the United States. And part of that freedom is that not everyone is going to follow directions.
2: I mean, yeah, people don't get that argument. They love China now because, you know, the government's got an iron fist. But then all the other times, China's the worst, right? So people, again, it's extremes. They want both ways. They want an efficient government with ultimate power when it's right. And then they want ultimate freedom with no government intervention at all when it, can be, when it serves them. And it just doesn't work that way. And to that point, I think there's a guy who uh, I've been following who got arrested in um, Florida for holding a big religious event. A whole bunch of people showed up and they arrested him. I'm not really picking sides of whether he's right or wrong, but I kind of made a, an argument about, well, he has his First Amendment rights, still, the right to free assembly. And so you can say, but not in this instance. And I said, well, you know, you can say that about every amendment. You know, it applies unless, some, unless we need it not to. It's like, that's not the way it works. That's not the way it was designed. And so the founders wrote it as inalienable rights. Right the rights don't come from the government they come from us existing that was the idea. And so I say all that to say like I don't really know but they broke that guy's rights. Maybe it was for the greater good and we'll all go on and he'll just be you know not guilty and we'll we'll go on about this but maybe it won't maybe they'll prosecute him. I mean
1: it's certainly a provocative conversation and another provocative conversation that I believe many people are having on social media is being a real estate investor this could be a time to move forward in your business. There could be many opportunities available. How do you feel about looking for those opportunities and quote
2: unquote, taking advantage of them? It's a very volatile time. Uh, I'm a risk analyst by trade and economics and risk is my favorite thing to study. So uh, in the face of a higher volatility, the decision-making becomes less clear. There certainly will be opportunity that comes from this, but the timeline for that is still uncertain and what those opportunities look like. My wild speculation um, my, my fun sounding narrative that I have no idea what will come through or not. But I actually think this is going to damage re- the rental real estate market. What I do, I have 32 doors. I think it's going to hurt the long-term rental real estate market pretty badly because people are already talking about these rent strikes, right? They're not just going to go back to paying rent on May 1, like it's no big deal or June 1. So there's gonna be a, it's going to be a long time paying. And when you let people get away with that, they've now set their behavior. It's like, well, if something bad happens, I don't have to pay. We're building that into our acceptance model. And the other thing that's going to happen is um, you're seeing a lot of these tenant landlord dispute behavior pop up. And that's the oldest look. A guy named Karl Marx wrote about this, uh, the proletariat versus the bourgeoisie, which is basically the landowner versus the working class a couple of years ago. This argument is hardly new. In six weeks, I just don't see that that going away. So I think there's going to be a worrisome trend in rental real estate going forward.
1: What have you seen with your tenants? Have you
2: had these conversations yet? Well, it's not the first yet. So my tenants don't generally pay. I have some tenants who pay early, but generally tenants don't pay that early. So I've had a probably I think 15 or 20% of my rent come in so far. But I don't know, I don't track that normally how think how late things come in or how early things come in. So I don't know. I've been watching it now. Um, my guess is we'll have some, some we'll have some metric that pays, maybe 50-60%. I have no idea total guess. Um, May will be worse. June will start to get back to normal. I mean, again, this is a matter of the timelines and how the economy goes, but based on what you know, these 15-day social and 30-day social distancing things, uh, maybe we get back to normal in June or July-ish, but I don't know that things will go all the way back to normal, if ever.
1: Yeah, I've been doing the same thing. I have four doors and eight tenants. And I use Cozy, which a lot of us do, Cozy.co, and I can see when people go and submit. And I went back and most people submit on the first of the month. So like you, I've had one of my four doors has paid their rent for April, and I'm waiting to see what happens with the rest. But we didn't foresee this. And it's interesting, you know, people talk about real estate and really feel that it is a safe place to put your money and a safe place to invest. We have lots of people in our community who support themselves fully by rental real estate. Did you foresee this kind of thing happening in the past? Like, I never thought this would be where we are with real estate today.
2: Nassim Taleb wrote the book called The Black Swan, and it's it's exactly this. It's every prediction model takes out tail risks, so they're irrelevant. And so we predict these things and we say, but what if the big extreme and you go, but you can't measure for the big, the big extreme. So you don't right. And then it's like, well, you didn't expect this. It's like (laughs) you didn't account for it. So I don't know that I didn't expect this by any means, but I'll say this six months ago, I sold 20% of my um, stock portfolio and bought gold. And I sold my house in Las Vegas, which I knew was overpriced in some ways. How about this to recorrect? Maybe like the economy was overheated anyway. So, how much of this correction, right? If we came down 10% across the board on the economy, I'd say that's we're probably well over 10% overheated anyways. So I, I can't say I predict this in real estate, but I sold some real estate in Las Vegas four months ago, knowing something bad was going to happen in 2020. I stopped buying rentals about a year ago.
1: Yeah, I, I kind of feel for our friends out there who are highly leveraged with lots of units. I imagine they're pretty worried right now.
2: Uh, I'm highly leveraged, 75% across the board i um, sorry to disagree. Uh, Over leverage is the wrong metric. To, it doesn't matter what your debt service is right now or what your your equity level is because what you need is cash. And so you could be 100% across the board leveraged, and it won't matter if you have the cash. So I know that uh, the, the 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 equity situation comes into play when it's time to unload. But we're a ways away from that because you got to remember, even if somebody, dude, even if you miss two payments, you don't get foreclosed. You got to miss like four. And a bigger commercial loans are going to give more leeway because they want the income. So I say all that to say, I think what we're going to see is we're going to see a large cash crunch in the country going all the way up the chain. That's why they're printing all this money. And so I, it's really hard to say. I don't know, because some states are doing weird things like mandatory rent controls already. And if you're over leveraged and you have low cash, then your sentiment is correct. I'm very worried for them. Yes. And yeah, I and in a sense
1: I know technically people still are leveraged but I feel like if you have a huge cash position I almost don't feel like that's leverage right because you could always just drop it into the mortgage if you had to you could always put it into your monthly payments but I do worry about those people who started with very little money put very little down and were counting on this income every month to live. And they, like everyone else, I guess they're no different than anyone else who, you know, if you work in a restaurant right now, you're kind of out of luck.
2: If you were like me and you started buying real estate in 2014 i 14 when the market was depressed and you just happened to stumble along at the good time. I mean, it's the same decision making. One of us got lucky. One of us got unlucky. And look, you know, for anybody who's really worried about this or in a bad situation, I'll say this. I mean, unless you're like just starting this and you're like 70, then I, I really, and you just lost everything or you're about to, I feel really bad. But for everybody who's like, 40 and below and you're about to have a tough time. I'm going to say this, there's a lot of baseball left to play. So like, you know, people are acting like this is going to end the world. Like (laughs) it is not going to be the end of the United States. It is not going to be the end of capitalism. It is not going to be the end of uh, people making money and being fruitful. We have a large uh, quality of life here. It's going to be disrupted. Some people are going to get sick and that's incredibly unfortunate, but I mean there's 350 million of us. It's just, it's not going to be the end of life. And so, I think people are getting too wrapped up in like the how bad this is going to be instead of like, well, what's next? Like, how can we survive? And then like, life's going to go on. I'm planning for, you said earlier, what are you doing for opportunities? Like I'm planning for business is going to, life is going to go on, business is going to continue.
1: Yeah. I was about to say for many, this looks like a time of opportunity. Everyone always talks about buying stocks on discount, but the housing market could certainly fall over the next bunch of months and that could create a lot of opportunity.
2: I think the opportunity is going to be more towards expensive retail because the people, again, just like in 2008, inequality is going to to manifest out of the disruption, for sure. The people who are ready to take opportunity are going to get a lot. And the people who are wounded, they're going to take a long time to get back and play. And so it creates a disparity. So I think you're going to see higher income homes actually do better, my opinion, do better in uh, bigger markets. Again, the other thing we have to consider is that opportunity is going to be regional. Like in 2008, it was very systemic. I think we talked about this the other day. It was very systemic, whereas this is going to be very regional. So like if you're in New York, California, Chicago, Miami, it's going to be worse. If you're in where I'm at, North Carolina, it's like I, there's no there's 18 cases here. I mean, it's just not, it can't take out the, the county. So we talk about real estate because you and I do that, we share that. And we talk about stocks because there's opportunities and certainly opportunities in stocks right now. But there's a third opportunity that um, I have been talking about for a few months, something I've made my number one focus on 2020. And I think this is going to exacerbate that which is I think the most valuable um, investment over the next, say, 10 years for most people is going to be intellectual property. So exactly what you do right now, right? Exactly what you're doing, intellectual property. And so you're building a brand around an identity. And I think right now we're seeing the, the fall of celebrity culture, right? They have no work. And, pe- and they're like singing all this stuff. And people are like, shut up, dude. we got a real problem. We, you, you're a superficial uh, pr- participant in society. And like, we love you when times are good, but we don't need you singing and telling us how, you know, why you're in a mansion. Like we got people that are, you know, I talk smack, but I'm poor too. So, <laughs> right. Um, and so, but I say all that to say, I think uh, because social media has expanded so much and because the democratization of pr- production uh, equipment, video, you know, you get your cell phone, it's got a good camera on it. And the algorithms are going to allow people to find authentic voices more than ever, rather than just so, so who, who, you know, Netflix says I should watch or who Disney says I should watch. Instead, YouTube is going to be like this, we know, we know based on your watching, your viewing habits, this is the guy you really want. He's got a good message. And so I say all that to say, and you've probably noticed it too, over the last two weeks, people have been doing way more zoom content and videos and some of it's funny memes and whatnot, but like. The outpouring of content creation is like, if you had an idea that you have, if you think your personality can succeed in social media, like now today is the day to start. And cause it's only going to get more and more valuable as time goes on.
1: Now, do you think that it's providing services with content or do you think it's mere entertainment?
2: I think both. It's not going to be like a handful of celebrities. It's going to be a lot more democratized, be more like very, you know, like tribal, right? Like we're very tribal people. And so I think there's going to be resources for both. I don't know that like right now, if you go to YouTube, like the most important, the biggest people are all the entertainers, right? But there's informative YouTube for days. That's extremely popular. So I don't know that one or the other will, I think it's a big market share. I think there's a big market share for content creators. And so the way I explain it is like, look, dude, Honey Boo Boo is famous. There's no reason for this. <laughs> if you have any, <laughs> Honey Boo Boo is famous. Anybody can be famous, right? So that's my argument. So I think if you have a personality that's dynamic. Or even if, you know, if you're a good educator, whatever your talents are, now is the time during, while in quarantine, now is the time to take that opportunity because it costs you nothing.
1: And I think what we're also seeing is that even as this gets better, right, as we stop social distancing, coronavirus, at some point we will manage it. But the change to our culture may stick around. So this fact that kids are now doing e-learning at home, the fact that coaching has all gone online, the fact that instead of going to see the psychiatrist or the social worker, you're now having a Zoom call. I wonder if some of that's going to stick around even when we don't have to worry about physical contact anymore.
2: That's why I'm so glad I read so much history. Like the 40-hour work week, we act like it's some like law of nature. It's like we made that because it used to be work as much as you can till they, till you died. And we negotiated down to 40 hours. And so now we're sitting there, we were kind of negotiating like the minimum wage is a big problem. And all these other, like we're not earning a living wage. It's like, what if you're in the same amount, but you only went to work 20 hours a week. So I think some of those things are going to manifest like people. It's not going to be a revolution of society. I don't believe. Right. But it will be the, Hey, we all work from home for a month and it kind of like worked out. Now, like maybe we can continue that. Maybe I don't have to go to work 40 hours anymore. Maybe a lot of jobs can be um, digital forever. And so I think there will be some permanent changes. Uh, Religion has been under decline for the last hundred years or so, and we lost church. And so I'm not advocating for religion, but I am advocating for maybe we should have a place where we all go see our neighbors. So we have to look our community in the eyes every week. And I think there's something incredibly valuable in that, that we've lost. So If we all stay, we do that with work though, right? So, but if we all stay home, I wonder that we lose, we isolate ourselves, even though we're on Zoom and talking to people, it's not the same. It's never going to replace, I say that arrogantly because I (laughs) I see a future where it could, but I would hate it. It's never going to, like, Doc, I love you, but if I saw you in person, this would be so much better. It's just the nature of humanity. And so um, I wonder if, my hope is, if, if we end up staying home more to do more work, then we actually create more voluntary community places to meet and do things to make up for the, hey, I got 20 hours. Well, now instead of sitting home for the other 20, I'll go out and see my my, my community.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting take on things because most people look at it the other way of look at all the opportunities. Like you and I can be talking, whereas 10 years ago, we couldn't have such a connection where we could both be seeing each other and having a high quality audio as well as recording it all at the same time. This is amazing, but you bring up an important point, which is that we need physical contact and it, it would be a lonely world if we all sat in front of our screens every day and that was the only way we got to talk to people
2: yeah and let me be clear like i love zoom i mean i'm stuck in my house but i've talked to more people that i haven't had the time to talk to in the last you know year or so like i am grinding out relationships right now and i love it so i'm not disparaging these i'm saying we need both and i think we a lot of what we do is interfered with uh, work And work, you know, most people who go to a 40 hour job don't work 40 hours a week. And so I just think this is an opportunity where it's like, Hey, the guy who, the people who want to work and do their thing. And like some people work 68 hours a week and they love it. It's like, you still can. And the people who don't, maybe they have more time to be, to socialize on their terms. So some people that might just mean staying home and talking to other people on the internet or video games or whatever. And some people might want to go out, but uh, to your larger point, I think this will change things. And I, my hope is that it'll be for the, for the better. And so if
1: I could look in my crystal ball and say, you're going to be home for the next four months, and then this is all going to loosen up, what would you hope to get accomplished? What are your goals for the next four months if you're stuck at home?
2: I'm going to become a filmmaker.
1: (laughs) I thought thought it was a podcaster. Now it's a filmmaker.
2: I started my podcast because I know that I have these dynamic conversations, just like I'm having with you. I have them all the time and people go, oh, that was it feels good, right? It feels very dynamic and exciting. And we can talk about these large variety of topics and well, you know, I'm just so well read. So I have a, I have some good input on almost all this stuff. <laughs> and I said, I want to have these conversations um, in public. And then what I found was the logistics of it were beyond my desire. And then I found that I was interviewing strangers and interviewing strangers is okay, but it's not my strength. And like, you know, me well enough to know like, Oh, you can picture Alex doing a, an interview. It's just, <laughs> nah, he's better at talking. So <laughs> 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 um, so the, the podcast was a very good transition for me, but I, I still feel like a storyteller. And so I think video, I've been doing photography for years. So I think videography is going to be my new, Hey, look, I might be awful and quit that too, but that's what I'm gonna try for you said four months. That's what I'm going to try. I
1: was about to say, I've seen a number of your photos. Uh, when we've been together at places like FinCon, you always do a quote unquote photo journal and uh, you take some great pictures. You have a good visual eye and it's a wonderful
2: way to tell stories. Thank you. Actually, uh, the, me, the FinCon that I met you was the first time that I did one of those large photo, photo blogs for a conference where I post a blog with 150 high-res images. My ser- the server hates it. Uh, and nobody can read the whole thing because it's obnoxiously long, but I, it's just the way I love to do them. And so I've been doing those now for a few years. You were in the first one. Bigger Pockets hired me to be the official photographer for BPCon this year. Yeah, it just so, goes
1: to show you. You know, you do the things you like doing, and it turns into opportunities.
2: Yeah, I literally sat down at the table. I was like, I I, hate, I shouldn't even say this out loud. I was, <laughs> I sat down at the table. They're like, "We want you to be the photographer." I was like, "No." And they're like, "Why?" I was like, "Well, because I don't want your money, and I want to do it my way." <laughs> <laughs> we came to a very good negotiation. I love those guys so much, so I was very for the opportunity, but. Um, but like you said, when you love something, the last thing you want to do, at least for me, the last thing I want to do when I love something is make make some kind of expectation in there that now it's a hassle, more hassle than fun. So, I, but I'm not worried about that with BP, but I had to give him, I had to razz him a little bit. I
1: was about to say, you hire Alex Felice, you know that he's going to do what he wants. I think that's part of like the process. <laughs> Just like when yeah. I asked you to come talk on this podcast, I knew you were going to talk about pretty much what you wanted to, but that's, yeah. that's, that's why I got you on.
2: I'm sorry, but hey, you called, you knew, so.
1: (laughs) Yeah, nothing to be sorry about. Well, Alex Gaffelis, thank you for coming on. These are, we like to say, unprecedented times, but maybe they're not. Maybe we'll look back in the future and think of this as a time that was annoying, but that we learned a lot and figured out what was important in life. Thanks again, Alex, and I will talk to you later. i am just that's awesome i think you guys and i've said this to both you before i think you guys just have a clarity to when you say things they're always incredibly clear and concise and that's not to say that they're not flowery and in and an interesting language too, but you yeah. guys have just this way of distilling what's important about an argument and putting it forward. And, uh, oh, thank you. I think the world will benefit from it. And I have no doubt that you guys will be incredibly successful. But I do tell you, I don't envy the process you're going to oh, go through to get God. that baby out. That's, I mean... <laughs> birthing a book sounds to me like horrendous, but...
0: Yeah. Everyone has told us that it's pretty terrible. So That doesn't
1: mean if Random House came to me, I'd turn him down. I'm just telling you. I'm just (laughs) telling you. But oh well. Congratulations. You guys, I think you deserve everything that's come to you. I am, as always, impressed and just think the world of you guys.